It's Tuesday, April 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Thousands of Etsy sellers have gone on strike. Protesting an increase of transaction fees, we're seeing as many as 14,000 sellers put their shops into vacation mode. The impact is unclear at the moment as Etsy has about 5 million sellers on the platform. Charity Scott, e-commerce reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more on the strike as the company makes efforts to become a bigger destination for shoppers. Next, there's another massive cargo ship that is stranded in Chesapeake Bay in Maryland, and it has been there for a month now. The circumstances aren't as disruptive as the last time a cargo ship was stuck in the Suez Canal, but it's becoming somewhat of a destination for gawkers and those bored enough wanting to see a stranded ship. Julie Bikowitz, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how the Coast Guard will be making a third attempt to get the ship free. Finally, the Army wants to build new barracks for its soldiers at Fort Bliss in Texas, but to save time and money, they will be using a 46-foot 3D printer. A machine called the Vulcan uses a special kind of concrete called lavacrete to build the walls of the building at a lower cost than traditional construction. David Rosa, Air Force reporter at Task and Purpose, joins us for what will be the largest 3D printed building in the Western Hemisphere once it's done. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It's not possible to run a business based on custom commissions if it's possible for an ad fee to be charged to any one of your custom orders. So it, running a custom made business when you don't know how much you're going to be making for each order, it, it just doesn't work. Joining us now is Charity Scott, e-commerce reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Charity. Thanks for having me. Well, Monday is the day that thousands of Etsy sellers were going on strike. They are uh, protesting uh, some some fees that Etsy was imposing on them. They're changing the fees to 6.5% on transactions. It's going from 5% to 6.5%. And, uh, you know, a lot of them banded together on Reddit and other forums and saying, you know, we want to make it a point that they know that we're not behind some of this. So I think they have more than 15,000 sellers who have signed a petition against the move to raise these fees. Um, maybe about 14,000 out of, of about 5 million active sellers are putting their stores on vacation mode. Uh, you know, this is kind of what would be considered the strike. So Charity, tell us more about it. What are we seeing? And, you know, do they expect that this could make an impact for them? I think that most of the sellers that I talked to aren't, delusional about the size of their current movement compared to the size of Etsy's overall seller base. So, you know, this they understand that this is relatively small movement that is definitely getting a lot of media attention and is building some momentum. I think there are lots of people that use Etsy that are very sympathetic to the sellers that are protesting these fee increases. And so for that reason, I think the sellers are optimistic, but it's not like I think they're expecting Etsy to come out tomorrow and say, the fees are canceled and we're going to do everything that you all are asking for us to do. Rather, I think that this is likely to be the first of many steps to uh, try to get Etsy's attention and really make the case that sellers deserve to have more of a seat at the table. This is also coming at an interesting time for Etsy itself, when they're trying to grow the company to really be a competitor with other e-commerce sites like Amazon. For a lot of people, if you're going to be ordering something online, one of the first places you think of is Amazon. Let me open Amazon and see if they have it, things like that. 
Etsy wants to kind of become something like that for their sellers. So Etsy has been growing like gangbusters over the last two years. I think it really started with handmade face masks, but since then Etsy has continued to grow at a really almost breakneck pace. And at this point, CEO Josh Silverman is doubling down on that and saying, you know, we just don't want to continue to grow as a niche platform, but we really want to be where people are starting their online shopping journeys. That is, of course, a really big ambition. Yes, absolutely. Amazon is the, the place that people think of when they think of, you know, where do people start shopping online? So that's a really big goal. And in order to get there, they're going to have to continue to make lots of aggressive changes to their platform so that they're equipped to compete with places like Amazon, Target, Walmart, who have, you know, huge inventories, big assortments and things like free shipping, two-day shipping, those right. sorts of things. So, so two things on that. You know, Etsy executives say that, well, this is where these increase in transaction fees, the money from that is going to be poured back into the platform so that we can compete on the level to what you just described. And the second part of that is that a lot of Etsy sellers are even saying, well, you know, that's counter to why we came to Etsy first, right? It's known as a place for crafts and uh, handmade things, vintage stuff. And you're going to lose that if you grow it to be kind of the next Amazon. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really the tension here. You know, you've got this group of sellers that is mostly producing items that are handmade. They take time to produce those items. So a quick turnaround or two-day ship shipping isn't always in the cards, depending on what the item is and how long it takes to make. But Etsy is trying to kind of figure out how to straddle that line of adhering to its roots as a platform for handcrafted goods and vintage products, while at the same time being something that can be a go-to destination for shoppers. And that's going to be hard, right? (laughs) And I think that those are the growing pains that we're seeing the company go through right now, figuring out how do you do both at the same time and try to serve this very quickly growing pool of sellers who may want different things. Charity Scott, e-commerce reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The big thing is the longer she sits out there, the more danger it is the vessel incurring damage. Uh, Fortunately, she's not blocking the channel and they're really weary about getting her halfway out and then blocking the channel. Joining us now is Julie Bikowitz, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Julie. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about uh, this new thing. (laughs) You know, how bored are you, I guess, is the big question. (laughs) This is actually a story that I had not really heard of. There's another massive cargo ship that's stuck somewhere. This one's in Maryland on the Chesapeake Bay. The last one that we had was in the Suez Canal, right, blocking up uh, passage between uh, people going back and forth. It was uh, a pretty big thing. So this one is a lot less pressure out there. But still, there's a huge 
container ship, uh, a thousand feet, the Ever Forward. It's been stuck there since March 13th. That's pretty amazing. And uh, they're trying to get it out. But in the meantime, it's kind of become this mini attraction. And people are showing up. They're looking at it. They're setting up lawn chairs and just kind of observing what's going on. Uh, Julie, tell us more about it, please. Well, so the first thing to know about this stock ship is it has the best possible name for a ship that has been stuck since March 13th. It's the Ever Forward, and it's just not moving forward at all. It's uh, about (laughs) two miles offshore in the Chesapeake Bay, which sounds like a really far distance, but when you're on shore and there's a giant container ship, it looks surprisingly close. So people have been coming to check it out. It's uh, very visible from this park in Pasadena, Maryland, which is kind of roughly speaking between Baltimore and Annapolis. The park is called Downs Park. You just fork over your $6 as the fee to get into the county park and you drive into the parking lot and you immediately notice that there's a giant container ship offshore. So the complication here for people who want to go check out the ship is it is cool. You get there and wow, there's a huge ship out there, but there's just absolutely nothing really going on. Um, (laughs) So you you drive this long distance, you get to the park, you you check out the ship and then that's kind of it. You do, uh, you know, people are posing for pictures and you kind of see it way in the background. It's like above their head floating almost. But yeah, it's just stuck out there. There's been two attempts so far to get this thing out of there. And both of those have failed. They're starting a new attempt. It's going to be slightly different this time. But tell us about those efforts, at least. First of all, let's just back up and explain what we know about how the ship got stuck. It was leaving the port of Baltimore um, March 13th and going through a 50-foot deep shipping channel, very commonly used, thousands of ships each year come in and out, heading down to Norfolk, Virginia. And something happened. Maybe it was pilot error, mechanical issue. We don't exactly know yet. That's all under investigation. But somehow this giant ship veered wildly off course and ended up running around in about 24 feet of water, just really not deep enough at all for a ship. And its draft is 42 feet. So it's really, really stuck in the bottom of the bay. And they've tried a couple different methods to get it out involving tugboats, just kind of yanking on it. They've been dredging the silt underneath the ship. And now what they're doing is since they feel like, and this is the Coast Guard-led effort, by the way, since they feel like they've gotten enough silt out from underneath the ship, they are trying to lighten the load enough to get it floating again. And so right now there are a couple of huge cranes slowly and carefully removing containers from the ship. They think they need to remove about 500 or so containers on a ship that's holding about 4,900 containers. And then uh, hopefully in a week or so, they'll be able to bring in some bigger tugboats. These are actually barges with winch systems to get the thing moving again. I guess the timeline, they say maybe another week, another two weeks possibly to get everything set up, to get those containers removed to lighten the load. So they're still in for a little bit more time with this, you know, and in the meantime, you know, you mentioned the park. It's funny <laughs> listening from, to some of the people that work there. They're like, wow, it's great. We're getting more people coming to the park and, and, and all that. But to your point that you mentioned earlier, they're like, yeah, you know, I mean, there's not much beyond just the ship sitting there. <laughs> so they're kind of yeah. even uh, ambivalent about it themselves. Yeah, it's just sort of, you know, it's cool, but then it's sort of what's next, you know. Um, but I think now that they are actually removing some of these containers, there's a tiny bit more action than when I was out there when absolutely nothing was happening. So there's something a little interesting, and I'm 
personally going to try to keep track of when they move these big barges in to actually try to refloat the ship because that part sounds pretty cool. It sounds like, you know, that might be interesting to see it get moving again. Now, when this happened earlier last year, you know, there was a lot a lot more at stake, right? It was blocking the pathway for other ships to go through. That's not necessarily the case here. I mean, there's, uh, as you mentioned, 4,900 containers on that ship. So all that stuff is being delayed. I think, uh, I guess it was mostly different home go- household goods that are on there. But when something like this happens, people also ask, you know, are there any environmental risks? As of what we hear now, they say no. Yeah, so there's a lot of good news. I mean, in terms of ships running aground, this is a decent situation in that no one was hurt. There's no pollution risk, as far as anyone knows, from the ship. And the containers themselves have mostly dry goods, household items that would go to big box stores and so forth. So it's not a terribly dangerous situation. And also, as you mentioned, and this is really key since we're having so many supply chain issues unrelated to this type of thing, there's no blocking of other ship traffic. Because again, it went so far outside the channel that it's not actually impeding anything. So ships are able to very easily get around it. And that hasn't disrupted the supply chain at all this time. Julie Bikowitz, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks again. And then the roof and plumbing and wiring and stuff, that all still is built by uh, a traditional uh, human labor. But because it has a head start with the walls being built with a computer, it's kind of faster and cheaper. So the so the advertising says. Joining us now is David Rosa, Air Force reporter at Task and Purpose. Thanks for joining us, David. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Well, there's some uh, cool stuff coming to the Army right now. They want to 3D print an entire barracks to save time and money. So Army soldiers could soon be among the first uh, to sleep in these things. They're going to be building these uh, new barracks at Fort Bliss, Texas, within the next 10 months, it seems like. And uh, if it all goes to plan, these will be the largest 3D printed buildings in the Western Hemisphere. So, David, tell us a little bit about this whole thing. Before reporting on the story, I was pretty new to 3D printing, and so I just was very confused because my impression of 3D printers are these tiny little boxes on desktops that are used to uh, print toys or or tools and that sort of thing. Um, But actually, the uh, Army would use these enormous, like 10,000-pound, 46-feet-long printers to kind of create these barracks. Uh, so these are very much larger scale than you might find like at your uh, local library or university than the printers you'd find there. But anyway, the, the promise with 3D printing these buildings is that because they're using a computer, they are said to be much more precise, fast, and uh, cheaper than using human labor to build that same structure. And the Army has actually already built a barracks last year at a different uh, training center in Texas called Camp Swift. How it works is the the walls are built using this 3D printing technology where the printer, so to speak, spits out a form of concrete. And it kind of looks like a like toothpaste, or um, I've heard it be described as a soft-serve machine spitting out ice cream. Yeah, except instead of ice cream, it's uh, concrete coming out in uh, really precise layers to form the walls 
of these buildings and then the roof and plumbing and wiring and stuff that all still is built by uh, a traditional uh, human labor but because it has a head start with the walls being built with a computer it's kind of faster and cheaper so the so the advertising says. Yeah, uh-huh. it's pretty uh, incredible technology. So the machine, the printer itself is called Vulcan, and it's made by a company called Icon, who has been in this game for some time now. I, I remember seeing videos of homes that they had built, you know, test homes, things like that. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, they've expanded and uh, have built a bunch of other stuff, as you mentioned, the, the barracks that they already built for the army. Um, so they're well on their way. I think um, this company has like $15 million in uh, Defense Department contracts since 2019. So there seems to be some type of partnership. We'll see how long it keeps going. But to your point of what it looks like, it does look like a very thick, soft-serve, concrete-colored thing. It makes these very exact lines. Everything's up to specification. And it looks really cool. And, and you know, this is coming at a time, too. We're talking about how uh, you can save time and money and all that. But, you know, we've seen the conditions of barracks, you know, on these military sites and and off these sites, you know, in in not so good conditions for our servicemen and women. And so this could be uh, something that that really helps in that side of things. I hope so. Yeah. And and that's right. The military at large has come under immense pressure recently because uh, you have all these families and service members reporting absolutely deplorable conditions from the housing that they're living in or the or the barracks. And this is both on and off base where they'll see asbestos and mold and rodents and insects just making the houses that they pretty much have to live in because there's not much choice in some of these places uh, just unlivable, point blank. And the army and, and the military at large has, uh, at a higher level, promised a lot of reforms and trying to uh, uh, improve the oversight mechanisms for the private housing providers who at least do the off-base housing for many families. But I think the military has also pledged to just kind of rebuild a lot of these older older structures. And yeah, hopefully hopefully technologies like Vulcan can provide a cheap, effective way of doing so. Yeah, um, yeah so we'll see where the technology goes. Right. I mean, you know, we see a lot of things really get started in the military in a a lot of ways. And and if it proves you proof of concept and and things work right, we see it get pulled out to to the rest of the country. So we know we're in a housing market crunch right now. There's problems with homelessness all over the country. And if you can really scale these kind of 3D, uh, these 3D printed buildings, structures, if you can really scale that up really quick, I mean, it could really make a difference, Uh, at least for this uh, project at Fort Bliss. They haven't said how much it will cost exactly, but they say it's uh, in the range of 10 to 30 percent cheaper than traditional construction. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I live in the Bay Area and, you know, I see every day the effects of these high housing prices and this nationwide housing shortage, as well as a a, a workforce shortage. I, I hear from different uh, media outlets that cover this stuff that the uh, uh, not only is there a limited supply of housing, but there's also a very limited supply of people to build houses. So, yeah, hopefully this technology could really kind of fill both gaps and help the folks who are sleeping in parks and tents by maybe uh, springing up some homes that they could hopefully sleep in. So, yeah, hopefully, knock on wood, this could really deliver on, on some big promises to, and fix some social issues. David Rosa. Air Force reporter at Task and Purpose. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.